What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris Boutte, and we have such a great episode today. My guest is Robin Hansen, and I don't even know how to put this into words, but check it out. This is one of the most important topics, in my opinion, one of the most important topics I will ever discuss on this podcast. All right. So this week I'll be posting some more episodes. So make sure that you stay tuned. But I believe this conversation with Robin Hanson sets the foundation. And you're you're like, why? Why, Chris? Why is this so important? Why is this such a critical subject for us to talk about? Well, Robin Hanson, he co-authored a book called The Elephant in the Brain. And as many of you know, back in 2019, I was canceled on YouTube and I was just so dumbfounded by, by human behavior. I was like, why are people doing this? Why, why do you post this? Why do you post that? But I, I started to take a step back and start seeing things everywhere. I'm like, why do people post what they post on social media? Why do people buy that kind of car? Why do people buy those kind of clothes? Why do people say these kind of things? Why do people do this? All these things. And I started to think, I'm like, is this is this just people signaling? Are people trying to signal what part of they're in? Uh, their political affiliations? Are they trying to uh, show people their wealth, their status? All these things, I had these questions. So I came across the elephant in the brain. And I was like, boom, this is it. This is the book. So we'll dive into it. I, I talk about it in this conversation with Robin Hanson. But the subtitle of The Elephant in the Brain is The the Hidden Motives of Everyday Life. So basically, Robin and his co-author, they, they, their theory is that we evolved to kind of deceive ourselves and have these hidden motives. And we're constantly signaling about who we are and what we're like and all these other things as a way to, you know, increase our social status or get a mate or whatever it is. And I'm telling you, once you start seeing the world through this lens, so many things start making sense. And I love this book so much. I ended up reading it for a second time recently before Robin came on. And we dive into so many topics. Like, why why do we spend so much money on going to doctors and taking medicine when the research shows that certain things are not as effective as we believe they are, right? Why, you know, do we go to college? Why do we rack up student debt, just tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars when there's no guarantee of it getting us a good job? Why is it that people buy us presents even when we tell them that we would rather have cash. And why do we buy people presents and not even know if they're gonna like it? Why do we do so many things? And it all circles back to signaling. And like I said, we have more episodes this week. Uh, tomorrow I'm gonna be talking about uh, moral grandstanding with Justin Tosi and his phenomenal book. And I have Megan Dom coming on. But this, this conversation really sets the foundation and I'm telling you, like, uh, the book will be linked down in the description below along with uh, Robin's uh, Twitter and everything like that. Make sure you grab a copy because I'm just telling you, this book will help you see the world in a brand new way. And as we'll discuss in this podcast, the problem is 
a lot of people would rather not learn about this stuff for very good reasons. Like it's easier to lie to ourselves. But anyways, I, I had to do a longer intro and set this thing up because like I said, I believe this is such an important topic. So anyways, if you enjoy this, make sure you pick up a copy of the book. And if you're not yet, make sure you're following me over on Twitter and Instagram so you don't miss any of these upcoming episodes. All right, but I am going to shut my mouth and introduce you to Robin Hansen as we talk about his book, The Elephant in the Brain. So today I am joined by Robin Hansen. How are you doing today, Robin? Great. Happy to be here. I am so happy you're here. I recently reread The Elephant in the Brain. Uh, so just real quick story. I came across the book when I was just really looking at the world and I, I was kind of just thinking, I'm like, it seems like so much of what we do is just signaling, like just looking on social media, I'm looking, I'm like, why did you post that? Right? Like, why do you, yeah. why do you say what you're doing, what you're eating? Why do you, why do couples post these happy pictures when, you know, behind the scenes, they're not happy and stuff. It's like, it seems like it's all a show. And then I, I came across the elephant in the brain. So you you are going to do a much better job explaining it than I am. So, and it's so much worse than you thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now, yeah, and that's what we're going to dive into because I feel like I'm analyzing everything now. But can you kind of explain to those who haven't read the book yet what the elephant in the brain kind of is, what, what piqued your interest in kind of learning about this? So I am a professional economist, a professor, and I've been doing social science for a long time. And as social scientists, we try to study lots of different areas of life, you know, medicine and school and politics, et cetera. And in each of these areas, our standard theories often have a lot of troubles explaining what seems to be going on. Uh, we have a very simple standard theory and we apply it and it doesn't work that well. Mm -hmm. And we struggle a lot. We, we invoke all sorts of alternative assumptions and more complicated models and saying, well, you know, the world is subtler than you think and look at all these other effects. But I came to realize that you can actually explain a lot of these puzzles relatively cleanly and simply if you just go right back to the basics and say, maybe people aren't doing things, things for the reasons they say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if when people go to school, it's not about learning the material? Mm -hmm. What if when they go to the doctor, it's not about getting healthy? What if when they vote, it's not about making their country or state better off? Mm -hmm. uh, what if people just have much more mundane and selfish reasons to do each of these things? And once you look at those possibilities, they just stand out as completely plausible and mm -hmm. they fit with a lot of the data. But oddly, we didn't notice that. <laughs> it's the elephant in the room about our motives, i.e. Yeah. the elephant in your brain, the thing that you kind of know is there or would know if you bothered to look, but you look the other way. Mm -hmm. And so the book is about explaining to you all these motives you've been hiding from yourself mm -hmm. and other people have been hiding from themselves so that you can understand the world around you in a much clearer, direct way. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so yeah, like, I guess my first question, like, so if I'm understanding correctly, a lot of us were doing things for kind of selfish 
reasons, uh, different intentions and motives, but we don't always realize it or we don't talk about it. And I guess my question to you is, you know, is, is it a good or bad thing to be self-aware of this? Because like, since I've- Sure, it's a I've great question. It, yeah, <laughs> I'm sitting here and everything I'm doing, I'm like, I'm aware right. of it. I don't so, know if it's good or so bad. So the theory here is that evolution designed you to be ignorant of these things. Mm -hmm. It decided that you could pretend better if you didn't really know. Mm -hmm. So we say that your conscious mind is not the king or president of your mind making the key decisions. Your conscious mind- is the press secretary. Its job is to make up a good story about what you're doing to mm. present to other people. And for that, it's maybe better off if you don't know what's really going on. <laughs> so you can be more creative and sincere in coming up with the stories that you do. So the key question is, was evolution right about you now <laughs> and your priorities now? So if, you know, if we were really finally evolved where evolution, you know, took fine details of your behavior and really honed them exactly to get everything right for your life and your environment. And if your priorities were the same as evolution's priorities, then you should not want to know if evolution didn't want you to know, mm -hmm. which case I'm doing you a disservice by telling you all this and maybe you should turn us off right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think at one point in your book, uh, maybe even in the intro where you explain it, you guys, you guys are writing the book and you have these motives, you know, you want to present yourself in a certain way and, and things like that. And, you know, right before we, we jumped on here, I was, I was thinking about it because, uh, so at the time of recording this, uh, tomorrow, I'm nine years sober, right? And I got sober through 12 step meetings and they, they taught us about self-seeking, right? And that's acknowledging that I'm only doing something to get something out of you, right? And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. You know, I've been pretty selfish and I only like do favors for people to get something in return and most of my life and I need to become a better person and stuff. But as I, I continued to stay sober and change my life around, I think that's when I started to notice it. I'm like, wait, everything I'm doing is to help me, right? Because, yeah. you know, uh, in, in 12 step programs, you know, the, uh, right. the well, so that, step is to be a I servant. mean, that's usually seen as, as wise and thoughtful of you to say it sort of privately to yourself or in a moment of reflection. But if, if you just go around honestly telling everybody, I'm just a selfish bastard and I'm going to do everything for myself, they, they won't appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Th so they want you to pretend like you have other motives. And you kind of want to pretend like you have other motives because that'll go over better for you. So a key question is, who should read our book then? Yeah, there we go. So, so the, what we would say is, first off, um, you know, among ordinary people, some of you have higher priorities for mm. understanding the people around you. You might be a manager, you might be a salesperson. And so it might be just really important in your role that you actually understand the people around you better than mm -hmm. you otherwise would. You also just might be kind of nerdy like me, where when you sort of go around and do the thing that seems intuitive, it's not very smooth. It's not very slick. Uh, yeah. You're just not very good at it intuitively. And so for those people, it might be better at least to consciously think through some of the reasons for the usual behavior. So uh, mm -hmm. you can actually you know, do it a little better. And then you know, for someone like myself as a social scientist or someone who's a policymaker, if you've told the world that your reason for existing is to go study existing, you know, human social practices and institutions and recommend how to improve them, then it's 
really on you to know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> if you are just completely misunderstanding the nature of school or medicine or politics, and then you propose reforms in these areas, mm -hmm. you just won't know what you're talking about. So you, you should suck it up and look at the ugly truth yeah. <laughs> about what we're really doing so that you can do your job. Yeah, I, I've, I've been really interested in uh, just self-deception lately, right? We lie to ourselves constantly. And I, I, I see the evolutionary benefits. Like uh, if we didn't have this confidence that we could achieve something, why would we pursue anything? And, you know, prior to launching this podcast and speaking with authors and, you know, everybody like that, I was doing mental health content, addiction recovery content. And something that you see a lot in, especially like in a self-help space is self-awareness. Self-awareness <laughs> is key. And yeah, but they don't really mean it. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think they mean? Well, I mean, they, I think there is a point of view about yourself they want you to accept and it has some negative elements, but it's not full self-awareness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they want you to take on a, an appropriately, you know, pro-social attitude. So if you were, for example, overly selfless, they want you to admit and know that you really want to be more caring for other people. Mm -hmm. And that's the awareness they want you to really come to, which may not be true. Yeah. So you'll have to sort of put on a new face or show to become the supposedly self-aware person mm -hmm. that they want you to become. Yeah. So, so I, I guess, you know, a question I have. So once I read, read the book and became a little bit more aware of this, and I started worrying, uh, uh, reading more and learning more about just like group selection and things like that. And you start learning about reciprocal altruism, right? Like we're doing things and hope to get it in return. So do you think that, you know, or, or even in your own life, now that you've you know, come to learn more about our selfish motives, can you see like, okay, well, it's worth it because it, it helps promote group cooperation. Like, even if we're being selfish, it is for this kind of greater good because we're helping one another out so we can succeed together. I mean, there are some elements that promote cooperation, but not mostly. <laughs> <laughs> like Mostly what? it's relatively selfish. Mm -hmm. But I mean, let's just go back to basics how much should you be trying to change yourself? So you know, our book is trying to tell you what the world is like mostly. It will then indirectly tell you what you are like, but our book is not a self-help book. Yeah. We're not trying to tell you how to reform yourself or that even that you should reform yourself. We want you to get a rough idea of what the world's like. So, I mean, my, my you know, what I would say is get a clear picture of other people mm -hmm. and then assume you're like them. Yeah. <laughs> Don't even bother to like dig deep and look at yourself because that's really hard to do it's mm -hmm. really hard to honestly look at yourself and you've got all these parts of your mind that will resist that and and, and cover it off and hide it mm -hmm. and you might even say well how important is it so look evolution built you as this complicated creature which it designed to be unaware of a lot of things you through your heroic conscious efforts can't change that much i'm sorry yeah <laughs> you're you'll have limited abilities to change yourself over even over a lifetime so instead of saying, how can I become the angels I always thought I was instead of this demon that I've, I've figured out I am, mm -hmm. <laughs> you should more say, I have a limited budget for honesty. Where mm -hmm. do I want to spend it? Mm. Where is it most important to me that I be honest? Where in my life does that matter the most? So for example, if, if things seem to be going wrong in your relationships, maybe you need a little more honesty there. 
if you know you're struggling in your career to understand people and your relation to them maybe you a little more honestly there would be useful ask where honestly would be val valuable to you and to the people around you mm -hmm. and try to work a bit at more honesty there and just let the rest of it go yeah you don't necessarily need to be honest about whether you love your mother okay <laughs> yeah yeah you I, know it, there's, there's just no point in climbing that mountain if there's nothing at the top okay yeah i've i've been you know i, I i'm really interested in just like trust and lying and stuff like that and there's there's a lot of moral arguments for for lying right like you know uh whether it's a significant other if it's your child if it's your whoever it is and when you know one right but those are usually arguments for lying to other people less about lying oh, to yourself to i see what you're saying yeah yeah, yeah. It's harder to come up with moral arguments about why you should lie to yourself mm -hmm. except for the fact that it's just easy you're just built for it it's it's already there it's trouble to change yeah and and the easier route is to accept it because it's how we've been evolving for however many years well just... accept it provisionally and when you first start to ask well, where is my priority that is where would my mm -hmm. dishonesty my lack of self-awareness be causing most problems Mm -hmm. and Got then it. you know step into it yeah so here's what i'm curious about too so you know like obviously you know you guys have thought about like who who this book you know who should be kind of looking at this book and everything like that but uh as a parent my son is 12 right and you know i i chased happiness in the wrong ways for a long time just in my life and things like that and i'm I'm presenting some of the ideas to him. So I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like games like Fortnite and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, when he gets his allowance or around Christmas time when he gets money, he wants to buy all these like skins inside the game. I, I'm trying to get him to kind of question his motives. So like, why do you want that? Because a lot of these things- Right, but he's going to be questioning your motive for wanting him to question his motives, right? Yeah. I mean, come on, a 12 year old, that's the first thing that's going to come to their mind. Like, why does dad not want me? <laughs> yeah do this is, is he feel threatened because i'm better at the game uh, does he feel cut out of my life because he can't participate uh -huh. you know does he just not want me to have fun and wants me to do homework all day i mean you know yeah. this is just the nature of of human relationships right mm -hmm. we're, we're all actually really good at looking for the possibility of hidden motives in our rivals around us yeah but we we suck at seeing <laughs> if there's somebody who we have a conflict with and you know we the question becomes well what hidden motive could they have for for taking an opposite side to me well we're really good at coming up with those theories yeah they just come to us rapid fire and they're yeah, not actually pretty good so yeah. if you want to find out your own motives just like flip it around like ask yourself if i were in conflict with a person like this doing this what would i say about their motives mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm wondering, you know, is this is this one of the reasons for so much of our our conflicts? Like when we're trying to help somebody else, you know, we all get really defensive when someone points out something that you know we might be doing wrong. Or we be because, in wrong. fact, when we're when we're trying to help, we often aren't so much trying to help. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Elaborate. Like well, if I'm uh, trying to help somebody else. What might my motive? Be? Well, so so for example, as you know, parents with young children. Mm -hmm. tell themselves it's good if the children are forced to go to bed early because yeah. then otherwise they won't get enough sleep mm -hmm. and we kind of know what's really going on is the parents just want a little time to themselves after the kids mm -hmm. to have their own time and, and that's a perfectly reasonable thing for them to want but they don't talk about it in that terms they they talk as if it was good for the child yeah. for the child to go to bed and they're making that up yeah yeah so 
and that 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 brings me to something you you mentioned a little bit earlier, and you have like a whole chapter on this, but about medicine. Can you explain a little about how you know us, you know, going sure. to the doctor or giving medicine or treating our kids boo boos so, or so bringing just soup? just to review the first third of the book is setting up the plausibility of why we might have hidden motives and the sort mm -hmm. of arguments about why they would exist. And the last two thirds of our book goes over ten different chapters. Each is a different area of life where in each chapter we take the usual motive people say and we outline that and then we describe some puzzles that don't fit very well with that usual motive and then we offer our alternative motive explanation that fits better with the puzzles which we say you know is a more important factor in that area of life yeah the medicine is one of those 10 chapters and honestly at least for people in the united states it's probably the hardest one to swallow <laughs> Yeah. So we'll all have different degrees of troubles with the different chapters. If if there's something that's not very sacred to you, so say art is not a thing for you, then you're mm -hmm. perfectly willing to believe that those artists have hidden motives. But art is a your sacred thing, then you will find the art chapter much harder to swallow. Mm -hmm. Same with religion or, or school. And so in our society, medicine is pretty sacred for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so being a little more cynical about medicine is hard for most of us to swallow. So I'm setting, I'm telling you right now, even if you don't buy what I'm about to tell you, there's these other nine chapters that you will find more plausible. <laughs> I, I can attack that, yes. <laughs> and so, you know, we basically say, it, we only expect you to buy seven or eight out of our 10 chapters. And that's enough for you to believe that there's a lot of hidden motives. We, we don't need to sell you on every story, okay? All right, so now for medicine, if we ask, why do you go to the doctor? Why do you go to the hospital? The obvious explanation everyone will give you is because, you know, there are these disease things <laughs> that make you sick and doctor types know ways to fix those, mm -hmm. but they're expensive and then you need some insurance to cover it. And then you need to know who the good people are. So you need some regulation. And, you know, that's our story about medicine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it makes sense on the surface because, you know, you, you, you don't make up excuses for things, at least unless they make sense on the surface. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's just the nature of excuses. Uh, you know, you, you can say the dog ate my homework, but you won't say the dragon ate my homework. Why? Because nobody believes in dragons. You don't make up that excuse. You make up the dog because, well, maybe a dog could have done it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so for medicine, this is our excuse, and it kind of makes sense on the surface. But there's a bunch of details about medicine that it just doesn't work with. Probably the most dramatic one is the fact that there is almost no correlation between health and medicine. Yeah. So in geographic regions where they consume more medicine, they're not healthier. Mm -hmm. uh, at least after you control for some other basic things. We do randomized experiments where we give some people a lower price of medicine and other have to pay a higher price. And the people who have a lower price consume more medicine, but they are not healthier. Mm -hmm. And so this is a consistent result across a lot of different studies over a long time. And that's got to give you pause. Yeah. <laughs> you thought you were getting medicine to be healthier, and but people who get more medicine are not healthier. And it's not the only puzzle that we have here. We also have that people say in rich countries spend a larger percentage of their income on medicine. And so when somebody switches from a poor country to rich country, they suddenly start spending more on medicine, even though their income doesn't change or other things don't change. You know, there's a keeping up with the Joneses effect on medicine. Mm -hmm. And there are other things that seem to have much larger effects on health than medicine, mm -hmm. such as air quality, sleep, nutrition, exercise. And if you start talking about those things, people just get bored really fast. They can't be bothered to talk about exercise <laughs> or air quality. It just doesn't interest them at all. Yeah. And if you talk about let's promote these things through policy, people, you know, yawn and say, well, maybe, but, uh, you know, 
who cares? <laughs> but once you, you go to medicine, all of a sudden, everybody cares a lot about medicine and making sure who gets medicine when and, you know, whether it's fair, you know, even though the correlation between health and medicine is much smaller than the correlation between health and these other things. Yeah. So here are a bunch of puzzles uh, that, you know, are hard to understand. And another last puzzle I'll mention is just that if, say, you give people who are about to undergo surgery, you give them information about the average death rate of people about to get that surgery under the hospital they're about to have it at or under the doctor they're about to have it on. And you say, we've got this information. How much do you want for it? How much will you pay? And yeah. 50 bucks, only, you know, 20% would pay 50 bucks. Yeah. Everybody else would, wouldn't even pay 50 bucks. That's and crazy. people just do not want the information. And if you just mm -hmm. give it to them for free, they, they don't act on it. They, they won't listen to it. Mm -hmm. So people are just remarkably unresponsive to information about the quality of the treatment or the doctor, or the hospital, or things like that. Mm -hmm. They just kind of want to trust. Yeah. They don't want to think about it. So I, I, let's, let's dive into policy for just a minute too, because something, something that I think about, especially after reading the book and talking about medicine is, you know, there's this huge de debate, you know, around, uh, you know, uh, healthcare, right? And when I look at it, and when we look at like placebo effects too, right? Can we guarantee that, you know, more access to healthcare, how much will it improve? Like, obviously, it would save lives, but how much of it is, not going to be as helpful as we want to believe. Because... I think we should finish the story of giving them the the true motive. Okay. Because we told them what the pretend motive was and we told them the data mm. that like makes there that puzzling, go. but we didn't like tell that. them what the better explanation for the motive is. So our better story of the motive with respect to medicine is showing that you care. Mm -hmm. We use medicine to show other people that we care about them, that we're willing to spend money on them, time and effort and sacrifice. Mm -hmm. when they are feeling bad to show them that we are their allies and we're not going to dump them. Mm -hmm. And we also want to let other people show they care about us. Mm -hmm. So an analogy would be Valentine's chocolates. So on Valentine's, you have a tradition of giving your lover some Valentine's chocolates. Mm -hmm. Now, when you decide how many chocolates to give them, you don't ask yourself, how hungry are they? The amount of chocolates you give them isn't really set by their need for it. It's set by your need to show that you're generous. Similarly, in medicine, we give too much medicine because some of it's useful and then much of it isn't, mm -hmm. but we keep giving more medicine because we want to show that we care a lot and we show care more than somebody else who cares less than us. Mm. And for Valentine's chocolates, if, um, if somebody had an opinion about the quality of different brands of chocolates, if they didn't think that you knew about that opinion or there was a shared opinion, they might not take it into account. So if I get a box of chocolates from you, if I happen to think that's not a good brand of chocolates, but I don't think you knew that, I'm not gonna you know, take that, hold it against you. Mm -hmm. But if, if it's a brand that everybody thinks is bad, I could hold that against you because I'm holding you to the standard of what does everybody think is the quality here because it's a mm -hmm. signal of effort, right? As a gift, what matters is the common perceived perception of the quality, not the actual private perceived perception mm -hmm. of quality of the chocolate. And so similarly for medicine, what we care is to give people the medical treatments that everybody thinks you should give them. And it doesn't matter so much if we privately think it's better or worse, because it's about sort of the gift and mm -hmm. the overall perception of the gift. And if on Valentine's, you don't have someone to give you a box of chocolates, you might buy yourself one and leave it on the desk at work. 
Yeah. Why? Because you want to be seen as the sort of person who is cared for in just the way everybody else who is cared for. Mm. You want to feel that comfort of feeling like you're cared for. And mm. what that needs is this is the thing everybody gets. So analogy to medicine, we, you know, much most of medicine is bought by other people. Your employer buys it for you. Your family buys it for you. But even if you buy your own medicine, you don't want to be left out. You want to get mm -hmm. the signs of caring that everybody else gets. Mm. So, so if I'm understanding you correctly, we one would might one might argue that we we we're looking for you know someone who's just a huge promote proponent of like Medicare for all. It's wanting to be seen as equal, like on a status level. Like, look, we care we're we're cared for as much as the this other person, or we want the sign that right. the government cares for us as much as everybody else. Is that but Absolutely. We, we don't admit that. So so I, I once heard a talk by somebody at the, you know, basically the head of the World Bank gave a talk at the TED conference when I was there. Mm -hmm. And he said, there's all these third world countries that want more hospitals. And they ask us for loans for hospitals. And there's all these health experts who say, that's a bad investment in poor countries. You need to be instead doing more basic things before you buy more hospitals. Mm -hmm. And he said, but the poor countries feel like they want the hospitals because that's a sign of respect. That is rich countries have hospitals. And so they want to have hospitals too. And he thought he just couldn't deny them the hospitals that they needed for their self-respect, even if they weren't actually very medically effective. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's kind of what, what's crazy too, is because if we think about just like, you know, rationally and stuff like that, you know, uh, right now there's like processes, you know, things have to get approved through, uh, you know, your insurance company or whoever it is. And there's, there's all these steps. So it's, it's weird just thinking in, in that context of finding that balance between what is actually needed and what do we want to symbolize that, that our government right. respects We're, us and cares for us. Now, I mean, if you said to yourself, well, I don't care about showing that I care. I just want the medically effective medicine. Yeah. Uh, well, then you should probably just cut back a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, just do less. Hold yourself to the standard of, if I had to pay for this out of my own pocket, would I? And if you wouldn't pay for it out of your own pocket, maybe you just don't do it. Because that's what mm -hmm. these experiments are showing, is that the, the people who pay for it out of their own pocket, they cut back to a level that doesn't really hurt. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so you do that for yourself. But I'd say... If you're running a company or head of a family, if you cut back on the medicine, your family and your employees will take that as a signal about how much you care about them. Mm -hmm. Can you withstand that signal of they're not caring? You might say, well, I'm going to give them the salary instead. And that won't necessarily do it. Yeah. yeah. They still might say, no, you don't seem to care about me because people who cared about me would want to make sure I got more medicine. Yeah. And it's, yeah, all that, it's really, it's really interesting because I, I look back like, uh, you know, just on my path of like recovery and I used to have all these anger issues and stuff. And a lot of it was this, this feeling that I wasn't cared for. Right. And like, I yeah. want people to show us, you know, and it's, it's absolutely, so, and it's so interesting. And, and they need to do it every day in some sense. I mean, so this was like, a thing you learn early on in marriage, which I'm sure you've learned by now. <laughs> but I, I had a colleague who'll be unnamed, unnamed here now. But he, yeah. you know, was young and married, and he, he and we talked about signaling. And he said to himself and out loud to the rest of us, "Well, I'm sure glad I'm not in a marriage where you have to signal all the time that you care about your spouse. We are, you know, we understand that we like each other and care about each other. We don't have to constantly show it." Mm -hmm. And a few years later, he said, "Okay, I was wrong." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because as you know even if you've spent 
a decade or decades showing that you care about something, they still want you to show them every day that you care more because they're afraid that this is the day you stop caring. Yeah. And the only way to convince them that you haven't stopped caring today <laughs> is to show them yet again that you care today. Yeah. In, in some way, shape or form. I used to pride myself in being in relationships and, and picking up on these very small things and getting like a, a very niche present, like, oh, because this reminds you of this one time because it's signaling to them, like, look, I pay attention to the very Absolutely. tiny details. And, and that's, that's something I've been dying to ask you since you agreed to come on here um, about is, is gifts and things like that. By any chance, have you read the book, Scroogeonomics? Because that book really screwed with my head. I haven't read it, but I'm familiar with the yeah. general category of the argument yeah. that, yes, of course, gifts are inefficient in the sense that, you know, the dollar value to the person who gets the gift is often less than the dollar value paid for by the person who bought the gift. Yeah. And and that that really messes me up. I think I read it last October or November, right before Christmas time, you know, and then, you know, there's all this and, and I'm looking at it and, you know, we're, you know, when you're looking now, at your money and some cultures and have a different. So signaling is a matter of an equilibrium and that mm. you're trying to do things that people perceive as showing that you care, but that depends on where you are and what people perceive. So there are some cultures in which giving cash is an acceptable gift. And so it doesn't look bad to give someone cash, in which case you, you, you less have that thing, but then they're just going to have some other wasteful signals in their culture that substitute for the wasteful signals in the gift. Yeah. Uh, I doubt you can really find an a culture that overall does less signaling. You'll just find them do different kinds of signaling. Mm, got it. So, so you know what? This is actually very relevant since my birthday is tomorrow. So, okay. So we get happy birthday. Gifts. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so, so we give gifts to signal, hey, I care about you and everything like that. And and like you were just saying, some cultures, you know, there's cash and everything. So, tell me this. Prior to my birthday, my mom's like, what do you want? And I'm like, just send me money. Just, just give me money. I don't need anything. And she's like, no. Right. So I've been right. getting these little things. She sent me a coffee mug and this little thing from my coffee. Right, right. Look over there. So, so when she when wants the signal too. So, okay. uh, right. It's not just about her showing that she cares about you. She wants to know that you want the signal from her. She wants the signal that you need the signal from her, that you care that she cares. Yeah. So you're asking for cash, you see, risks her thinking that you no longer care if she cares. That's, that's, do you ever sit back and ask yourself why you like to learn about this? It gets so complicated, right? Because we're like constantly analyzing like about this stuff. Like right, well, we, at the beginning you said you like to do podcasts, you just like to learn about everything. And, yeah. and then here's the point where I tell you, well, maybe you don't. <laughs> Okay. What, is, what am I signaling with this? Well, I mean, just in general, I think most of us do like to think we want to learn about many things mm -hmm. until we actually find out stuff that we didn't want to learn. Yeah. And we didn't really expect there was much of that. And there's yeah. just a lot more of it than we realize. So, yeah. So yeah. here, I mean, I became a professor of economics and I yeah. studied the world because I, I wanted to understand the world and to make the world better, to figure out better new mm -hmm. institutions. I didn't expect to find very many really ugly things mm -hmm. as I probed. So I didn't think that was a problem, but I was surprised to learn that the world is in many ways much uglier than I anticipated, yeah. much more resistant to change and improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, and that 
nobody would reward me for telling them these things. They don't want to hear it. So they're not going to say yay, yay, Robin for telling them about it. So I can discover that it's true. But then if I feel obligated to tell everybody the truth, once I've discovered it, I realize that that's just going to hurt me because people didn't want to learn this truth. Yeah. Or at least in general, it would be a relatively niche audience. So I have to be satisfied with finding the niche audience that kind of at least somewhat wants to learn this stuff. You found, you found me. So that's good. <laughs> at, at least for now. Now, so I told you our book has 10 different chapters on 10 different areas of life. Now mm-hmm. we think you could go on for another 20 or 30 chapters. What? You could go on to study hidden motives in lots of other areas of life. And we were kind of hoping that somebody else would be inspired by our book to like start in on those other 20 or 30 chapters, but almost no one says, yeah, that's what I want to do. I mean, we talk to a lot of people like you who think the book is interesting, but nobody says to themselves, yeah, I want to know more. Show me more chapters. They, 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 they are struggling with accepting the 10 chapters we're giving them. (laughs) They feel proud of themselves for getting through them and being honest enough to look at them. They they do not want more. They are not asking for a sequel where there are 10 more chapters. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting because I've, I've noticed that just with my my own content, you know, uh, for, for a little while, I started making some YouTube videos and everything. I like to learn about the, the psychology of conspiracy theorists and why do people believe these things and, uh, you know, or paranormal beliefs or supernatural beliefs and all these other things. And I would make videos about it and people would get pissed, right? And they get upset about this. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting. So I can only imagine, like, have, have you, <laughs> have you had people just reach out and debate you about these things? Cause they take the book as a personal attack or has it done a pretty decent job finding the right. No, I, I think they know that the simple solution is just to ignore it. If they don't like it, that is, that is the historical thing. So, I mean, the, the first thing to say is, you know, humanity is very old. Yeah. All through history, there have been people who live their whole lives, and at the end of their life, they understood a lot more about humanity than they did at the beginning. And some of those people have written that stuff down, and they've been called cynics. Mm-hmm. And all through history, we've had people, you know, often somewhat articulate, write down their cynical descriptions of the world, and people have nodded at that and sort of waved their hand away and ignored it. Yeah. <laughs> That's just the way it's gone all through history. So I honestly can't be that sure that we're going to have any different fate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense. Basically, everyone kind of knows this is a point of view out there, and they're aware that it exists, and they're aware that other people don't want to hear it, so they don't really need to fight Mm -hmm. to push it down. They know that everybody else is going to, as soon as they have the excuse or given the opportunity, they will just look away and forget about it. Yeah. There's no need to repress it. Yeah, and and something something that just popped into my head. I was reading some research the other day talking about how people with depression are a little bit more aware and notice what's going on but you know i i perceive myself as a pretty happy guy on a on a day-to-day basis i have my up days and down days like everybody else but do you do you think that people can kind of you know see through this lens and kind of see a little bit more of reality and our hidden motives and still maintain a a happy life seeing you know being cynical you know well, again, I think it depends on how much you're focused on yourself and lots of details versus, you know, having a focus. So if you just try to make yourself look honestly at everything you do, mm-hmm. that's going to be really hard and it's not going to well go well. I just yeah. don't think we have the capacity for that. We are just mm-hmm. not up to the task of clearly seeing all of our lies and self-deceptions uh, all through our lives. We're, we're just not 
creatures yeah. like that. Yeah. Maybe we can make robots in the future who had that capacity, but we're just not such creatures. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, so but but if you have a focus, so for example, I don't know, I don't know what your profession is, but say if you were a teacher or you were a manager or a salesperson, yeah. you could ask, you know, about your particular customers or your employees, what are their motives and how could you help them out? Mm. And then you wouldn't have to be, you know, addressing every possible way in which your own motives might not be honest. You, you have a focus and that could be empowering because it's part of, you know, what makes you important in the world is this mm -hmm. is the thing you do. So I think we're all used to in our center of our career, you know, it's hard work at least at some point to mm -hmm. get good at it, right? Yeah. And we're proud of the hard work we did to overcome our reluctance and, you know, lack of mm -hmm. skills to get good at something that later on we say this is, you know, one of the reasons the world values me is I can do this. Well, yeah. that's a reason to face your self-deception and hidden motives that are directly related to the thing that you are good at the thing that makes you special mm. yes it'll be a bit of a sacrifice yet it'll be yes it'll be hard work it won't be pleasant but that's the nature of getting good at something yeah yeah it's it, it's something that I, I i think about just you know uh since i've worked in the mental health field and in treatment centers you know one of the most difficult things that seems to keep people away from, you know, seeking help is that we have to do that self-reflection and look at things that we've been kind of neglecting and, you know, and all that stuff. Well, in 12-step programs, it's the fourth step and that it becomes a total mess. And I remember, you know, my first year and stuff like that, but it's interesting because it's not, you know, I originally thought it was just, you know, people with a traumatic past or dealing with addiction, but it's like a human thing. Is that kind of what you're saying? Like we, none of us really want to look behind that curtain and it's a, it's difficult. Right now, there are times when there are particular things we're hiding from ourselves that we need to look at that particular thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I'm an alcoholic, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. So generically, most of us get along fine, just not looking at all the hidden motives yeah. and not being honest with ourselves about much of anything. Right. Sometimes our dishonesty has, you know, caused some substantial problems and we're kind of going to need to look at that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so you know, that's more of a special case and it's going to be painful, but then we don't look at everything. We, yeah. we look at just the key things we need to, to get past that problem. Mm. And there's just no way that we're suddenly honest about everything that, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. Thinking absolutely. of the, the standard interview question, like what's your biggest weakness? And somebody <laughs> right. says, I work too hard. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, are they being honest with themselves? I mean, they're they're looking in and finding their weakness. I mean, that's all about honesty, right? But no, yeah. of course, that's not honest. That's just finding the best looking flaw yeah. for the interview, right? And and that's a lot of our honesty is like that, looking yeah. for like, okay, I'm going to have to come up with some sort of flaw mm -hmm. to I admit to. I'm going to have to come up with something. Well, what's the least harmful flaw I could admit to? Mm -hmm. that yeah. will get me past this yeah that'll get me the job still <laughs> um so i i i i wanted to ask too i want to kind of talk about just kind of like i don't know uh how how we we try to you know identify with groups because i think that's that's another reason i really dove into the book years ago not a lot of years ago 2019 uh i i had just a, a bajillion strangers on the internet 
going after my YouTube channel and all this. And, and I think that's when I noticed this signaling too, like, who are you? You're a stranger. Why are you doing that? And, and I think I saw it too, like just during the, uh, the, the election season and stuff with the polarization. So can, can you talk a little bit well, about, so, I mean, signaling? I think the key thing is that if you, if I say signaling, what most people come to mind is, or showing off, people think showing off how smart you are, how athletic you are, how rich you are, how popular you are, mm -hmm. how, you know, how many, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. But what people don't realize is we actually show off loyalty just as much as we show off ability. Mm. Loyalty is just really important in the world. And as you know, most people, it's true that like who you know is as important as what you know. Yeah, people don't like to admit it so much. They like to pretend otherwise. But you know, people really care a lot about who's loyal to who, mm -hmm. and people put a lot of effort into showing loyalty not only to their immediate associates but to larger groups that they feel allied with and that they want people around them to see them as loyal to. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very strong motivation. And often people are willing to sacrifice, say, looking smart to look loyal. <laughs> That's what you are, of course, seeing in many of these internet conversations. You, you might mm -hmm. think, well, what would the smart sounding thing to say would be? Well, it would be to admit that, you know, there's these complications, et cetera. But if you want to sound loyal to your group, well, heck with the complications, you go with the simple story that, you know, makes your group look good, that makes you look loyal to your group. Yeah. So is that is that anything that that you you know if anybody's working on that aspect or if you are like when it comes to just for example when we're talking about just you know the the last year or so with the pandemic with you know the storming of the capital and things like that like like it's difficult for us to look at these hidden motives but there are instances where this group loyalty makes us act not smart which could harm others so are we doing anything to be like, okay, we don't got to show you everything. So, you gotta so see how in almost all eras, people spend a lot of effort showing loyalty. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't distinguish our era. I would say if some, so first of all, I would say the book Elephant in the Brain is not trying to explain trends. It's not trying to tell you how today is different than 20 or 50 or a year or hundred years ago, mm -hmm. or even how our country is different than other countries. Mm -hmm. We're basically saying there's just some very basic patterns all through history everywhere in the world where people don't know what's going on. And so that's the obvious first priority is just to look at the basic patterns and what we're ignorant of. But mm -hmm. it should and does vary place to place and time to time. And so a lower priority, but still a valid question to ask is how are these things changing over time? Mm -hmm. So that sounds like what you're asking is how is signaling loyalty changing over time, say here in the United States? Yeah. So one sort of obvious thing that we've seen over and over in history that seems to be playing out again, which is right after a big war with an enemy, we are showing loyalty to us relative to them. Mm -hmm. And then over time, as we have peace and prosperity and they fade and the threats from them fade, we focus more on internal divisions. Mm. And then the loyalty is about my side of us versus your side of us. And even though that comes at the cost of us versus them, you're not afraid of them because them haven't been around for a long time and they haven't done anything and they don't look like they're about to do something. So yeah. who cares about them? <laughs> so I think that's what you're more seeing in the United States lately is slow, just a slow accumulation of, of you know peace and prosperity, <laughs> which means that they don't matter as much. Another thing that happens during peace and prosperity is inequality slowly increases. <laughs> Wars destroy lots of things. And so after the war, 
the world is more equal because there's just less stuff of all sorts. And then in peace and prosperity, we make more stuff and we accumulate more stuff, but some people accumulate more than others. And so, Mm -hmm. ta-da, you have inequality. So, you know, that that sort of roughly explains the last half century or so of, of, say, U.S. or even Western Europe history is, you know, peace and prosperity produces more inequality and also more internal divisions relative to external Mm, divisions. Yeah. So... Do you, do you think, uh, I don't know if you're more optimistic or pessimistic on it. Do you think there's any, any solutions for this and seeing how, well, you, I mean, yes, there are. You just don't want them. <laughs> Another <laughs> big war will do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard, okay. So here's something I was, right. I was actually thinking about the other day was I heard people, they, they, they feel more connected, you know, like astronauts when they see the, the, the earth, right? Yeah. We're not, yeah. We're not seeing like, you know, oh, I'm from this, this part of the country and that part of the country. We're just seeing the globe. So it's like, you know, with these people like Elon Musk and Bezos talking about shooting people in outer space, like, do you think that'll help fix people just sending them out to outer space, seeing the globe I mean, and coming back? Clearly, to we were actually more focused on space when we were focused on beating the rivals, right? Mm-hmm. Space was the way we could beat the rivals. We could be mm-hmm. better at space. And we wanted to get to space first because space was the key to beating them. So it's the other way around. We, we were much more interested in and focused on space when it helped us fight a rival. Mm. Now that the rivals have faded, we're less interested in space. <laughs> yeah. That's and of course, that's, that's one of the good. things people try to do to, to get interest. If, the, if NASA, say, wants to get you interested in space, they say, well, the Chinese are getting into space. You don't want to let the Chinese get ahead of you, right? do you? Yeah. Yeah. So, so how, how, much, uh, how much do you think competition is, is one of our motivations? Uh, or is that something even deeper than just com- uh, competitiveness? You know what I mean? Like, because well, I it's about, this. there are different kinds of comp- competition. So mm-hmm. within your group, you are trying to show you're loyal in part relative to other people's loyalty. You're trying to show you're more loyal than them. <laughs> yeah. You, you might want your group to compete well against other groups, but to the extent you aren't afraid of other groups, you're more interested in, you know, showing your loyalty to your group or even your faction of your group. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, competition is everywhere, but it, it takes on different forms. You might think, do I want my company to be competitive with other companies or do I want my faction inside the company to be competitive relative to other factions? Or do I, I just want to outcompete my work rivals? Mm. Uh, or do I want to outcompete my f- brother and sister and looking better to my parents, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of competition. The question is just which, which kinds show up because you know sometimes whole groups do a good job of organizing to compete with outside groups. Mm-hmm. And then they are competitive as a group. And if they can better organize to you know, suppress their internal divisions and rivalries in order to cooperate to, then they can have a better competition with an outside group, which is why we often do cooperate more internally when we face an outside threat. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is really a deep and difficult problem. Humanity has been honed over 10,000 years to have outside threats of war as one of the main processes that, you know, pulled groups together and Mm -hmm. made them, you know, behave a bit and not just, you know, the elites could just ignore everybody and just grab everything for themselves and even ignore the future if they didn't care about outside threats, but outside threats have disciplined that. That means, no, you can't just like grab everything and and enjoy life. So, you know, there's a standard story about decadence, which is, has a substantial truth to it that societies that allowed their elites to just get lazy and (laughs) self-indulgent. (laughs) <laughs> they, they were conquered by outsiders 
Yeah. And everybody says, no, we can't allow ourselves and our elites to become like that. We need to remember, you know, uh, discipline and, and mm. we need to practice coherence and practice war even and, and show that we have our resolve that we would resist an outside attempt. Why? Because if we don't, then outsiders will come get us. Right. Mm. But of course, for any one of us, it's more important that we just show that we have the attitude about that sort of thing that other people want us to have, Yeah. whether or not that helps the group at all, because we don't actually have much influence over on the whole group, but we can influence is whether the people around us like and respect us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, it's interesting to like, now I'm just thinking about, you know, just things that we, we, we say we want and things like that. Like, uh, you know, um, just the signal our friends give us like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll help you out with this. And it's just to show the type of person that they are. And maybe they're a better friend than somebody else because they're competing with other people in your, right. in your circle. Now, a, a point to be clear. I mean, I think some people get confused about this. You can't show X unless X is true. What do you mean by that? Mean well, by so that? for example, if you're trying to show how athletic you are, you have to be athletic <laughs> to show athleticism. You can't show that you're smart unless you are smart. Mm -hmm. And so you can't show that you care unless you care. Mm. Okay. So it's not like pretending something you're not. That's not what we're talking about. Mm. We're talking about the things that you actually are showing them. And it's often your higher priority to show them than to be them, but you can't show them without being them too. Yeah. Absolutely. So people who show want to show that they care, do care. Yeah. You can't show something that isn't true. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. Um, and you mentioned intelligence, and and this is something I, I've wanted to ask you about as well. Uh, you know, so my my son's only only twelve, but I I remember all the social pressures about college, and you know, you're an educator, and you you know you 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 teach others, and and uh, I I think I heard you mention in the other podcast I just listened to mention. Um, was it it's named Brian Kaplan, where he has that book, The Case Against Education. And his argument is that education is a lot of signaling. And, you know, when we're spending all this money and all these things, and there's no guarantee for a job after you get through college, all the all this stuff, my question to you is, I don't know, like, what are your thoughts on higher education when it comes to signaling versus actually pursuing it for education? Like, what, what well, that's you, true. I mean, the answer there is like for all other signaling. Okay. Uh, so school pretends like it's about learning the material that will help you on jobs and, and other aspects in life later. And to a large extent, that's not true. <laughs> you, you don't actually learn that much at school. But what you do is show off and impress people relative to your competitors. Mm -hmm. And the social value of that is low. So it's not, you know, obvious we should be subsidizing education. Maybe we should even be taxing it. But mm. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be trying to go to school and look good compared to other people, right? And so there's a difference between your private individual incentives and our collective interest. Mm -hmm. Collectively, we should probably tax school instead of subsidizing it so much, or at least tax the kind of useless school that we usually have. Mm -hmm. And similarly, we might even tax medicine because it's actually kind of useless on the margin instead mm. of subsidizing it as we do. Uh, but individually, if you cut off medicine from your family, that won't, they won't like that. They will take a bad message from you. And similarly, if you don't go to school and do good, and then you try to go to future employers later, they'll say, mm -hmm. why should I believe that you didn't go to school because of your high ethical principles rather than that it didn't make you look good? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they yeah. will be skeptical about your stance. So your 
simultaneously again, you know, this is, you know, the nature of life, simultaneously don't hurt yourself individually too much in your competition with other people. But if we can, let's coordinate to help us all together. So mm -hmm. let's find a way to cut back on school together and mm -hmm. medicine together, even as each of us is sort of doing the best they can mm -hmm. for themselves and their family, you know, given the situation we're in. Mm. So let me ask you that. Okay. Quick fictional scenario, or maybe you've done this. Let's say you're going to a high school graduation and they asked you to go up there and speak, right? How would you break down who in that audience of, of graduating seniors who should pursue college and who should maybe go after a vocation or something else? Like what factors should we take into consideration? Is it our parents? Is it our family? Is it the amount of money we want to make? Like what, what is well, it? So if we were inclined to a career mm -hmm. where a very practical curriculum would just directly teach us that career, like perhaps plumbing or being an electrician or something, mm -hmm. well, then it would make most sense to just directly learn that thing and then show everybody that we're good at it. Mm -hmm. uh, but if the kind of career we want to go into is something where they find it very hard to evaluate people, even after many years, yeah. then you're going to want to collect these signs that you're smart and conscientious and conformist and go to a usual school program and mm -hmm. pick one that you can manage to suffer through because of course it won't be very impressive if you don't do a good job there. Yeah. Uh, so I might more think about how we could reform school to be better. So, you know, one thing I might say is, well, look at these, say during the college years, if we could find a way that you could, show off all the same skills that you would show off at college, but actually do something useful, that would be the big win. <laughs> if yeah. you could actually get on some sort of job and training program, but still able to show off your smarts and conscientiousness and conformity in the same way that college does, now it would be less of a waste. Because mm -hmm. of course, people are showing off on jobs, even past school on jobs, people are trying to show, show off that they did a good job and then they have good abilities on the job. Mm -hmm. So. I would say, well, what's the obstacle? Why can't we show off these things on jobs? And of course, many people just look at that and go, of course you can't. But I'd say the problem is work is not standardized to the mm. remote degree that school is. So the, the thing about school is you go to, to college and you get you know, a certain GPA in certain college, people think they know how to compare those you know, within school and across schools so that they can rank you totally compared to everybody else. Yeah. And that's just much harder to do on a job. Mm. You went on a particular job in a particular city on a particular company, and you had a particular boss who wrote this letter for you afterwards. How are we supposed to compare that? Yeah. And that's the problem Like you'll go, you will learn things, but we won't know how much you've learned. And so you'll yeah. compete against this college person will give us this credible signal about how good they are compared to all the college people. Mm -hmm. And there's you, which we don't really know how to compare. Mm -hmm. And we'll have to assume the worst. We'll have to figure, well, you knew you weren't so good. So you went off and went through the path that was would hide yeah. your bad qualities more because it's harder to see your see how good you are. And then we're going to have to hold that against you. Yeah. And so the challenge would then be to say, take some prestigious companies by Google or whatever and have a program where people go work for that company instead of going to college. Mm. But then after four years, they get a standardized ranking of how well they did in that job. Oh, okay. If you could some, I mean, that's work to do. You'll have to find, you know, standardize the job, standardize the evaluation of jobs. And you need to be standardizing across companies. That is, you need to have a pool of companies 
all of which are participating mm. in this way to rate their, you know, employees who are there instead of going to college. Mm -hmm. So that at the end of those four years, we can produce this standard rating so that whoever's in the top 5%, we could know they're in the top 5%. We could mm -hmm. say, look, this was a top 5% worker out of all these companies. And then that person could compete with the top 5% college person who it's easier to evaluate because we'll say, not, yes, they're both top 5%. You know what, this guy who worked for four years, he actually knows more stuff about working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then there would be an advantage there. But you see, the problem now is, yeah, you know, they, they learned something, but you're not really sure what it was and you're not really sure how to compare. Mm -hmm. So th that's showing you that sort of the key problems, again, with signaling. If say say I care about your health, but instead of buying you medicine, I buy you an elliptical and I go for jogs with you and I get you some nutritional supplements. Mm -hmm. Well, you might think, well, I guess, you know, he cares somewhat, but they wouldn't know how to compare. Yeah. Somebody else got the health insurance package. They they know they know what that means about whether you care. And this this, you know, package you threw together that's unusual mm -hmm. is just going to be hard, hard to rate it. Yeah, it, it's why we do the standard thing. Yeah, it's when I when I think about just like going through that process, because, uh, you know, an, another reason, like, as, as we're having this conversation, I'm just thinking, I'm like, you know, I was waiting for your book, like my entire life, because I, I just always had those ideas, like, in high school, I'm like, wait, so I got to graduate high school, get a certain GPA, just so this school thinks that I'm good. And I'm signaling that I'm a good student, I'm responsible, I go to class, I do my homework, I do this, right. And then depending on the school, that's going to signal to employers, right, that I go to school, I learn this, I study right. this, and all these things. And this kind of like, this, this, this and, it, it's, and honestly, I mean, from my view, it sends, it sends kind of a bad signal, right? <laughs> How so? I, I mean, well, if somebody had been going through those school years, you know, with the main purpose of collecting GPA in order to get a good job later, I, I think to myself, you know, mm -hmm. what kind of a human is that, right? That, that's yeah. all they wanted out of life. So yeah. if somebody was going along through school and that was really interested in each topic and studied things because they were just interesting and they just happened to get a good GPA, well, that's going to look better, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to think, you know, that person will then have interesting conversations. They will have the initiative. They might start an interesting project at my company if I were hiring them, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas this person who just always wanted to get that top GPA in order to get into the best school, now they want to be in my job because it's a top job. Well, what are they going to do here? Well, they're going to just try to be the top employee here. But is that going to be productive? Are they going to be creative about it? Are they going to take an initiative? Are they going to like take a chance and mm -hmm. help the company develop? Do they care about this thing we do here at the company or do they yeah. just want to come here in order to, you know, fill out the resume, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think about that too, just, you know, in, in general, like happiness. And sometimes I don't, I don't think that we realize that's what we're doing as well. And we're kind of just go on this autopilot. I want to be the best. I want to move up the ladder. I want to do this. And a lot of it's just, it's not for any intrinsic motivation, like, like, like what, right. we, well, what so, we value. I mean, I think it's, it's worse because, you know, often when we buy medicine, say, mm -hmm. we are mainly just buying the prestige of the doctor. Mm -hmm. And so, the doctor doesn't actually know, have to know how to do medicine well. From our point of view, we don't reward them for doing it well. We just reward them for being the most prestigious doctor. So if the medical system ends up you know, putting the person on the highest pedestal who learns certain somewhat arbitrary things that aren't actually that useful, the system still functions because the rest of us just wanted the top doctor. You know, yeah. I care about more of you if I get you a top doctor when you're sick. And it doesn't really matter why they're top or what criteria put them on top. 
because yeah. I just need you to see that I got the, the standard top person because it's about sort of having the standard thing. So in a lot of our areas, same way with a lawyer, right? Interestingly, mm -hmm. like people mainly pick lawyers based on the prestige of their law firm and their school, and they don't yeah. ever actually look at what track record they have, like whether they won or lost cases. Right. Nobody bothers to look at that, right? And so why should they try hard to win or lose win cases as opposed to lose cases when they need yeah. to try hard is get to the top firm and get from the top school because yeah. that's the thing we're all picking on. Yeah. So is that is that kind of what we were mentioning earlier, just with the kind of the way the system's set up? Like the 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 better your signal is, the less effort you can kind of put in. Like I look at uh, experts a lot, right, on Wall Street and predictions and analysts. And and I, I love the work of like Philip Tetlock and you look at it and their accuracy isn't that great, but since they have all this education and they've worked at these, you know, prestigious news right. outlets or-, or uh, it's, it's even worse. So have you ever heard of the phrase too cool for school? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's the idea that some students gain in status by doing reasonably well at school, but without hardly trying. Mm. And so someone who does well at school, but tries hard, then you look at them and you say, that's not as impressive as this other person who did almost yeah, as well, but just... hardly tried at all. Mm. So similarly, you know, you might want the, the lawyer or the doctor who seems to be a decent lawyer or doctor, but hardly tried at all yeah. because they, people might be more impressed with that and they put them higher in the ranking. And then you want that person because you're basically buying prestige mm. as your gift to someone else to show that you care. Mm. Do you do you think there's any kind of evolutionary reason for that, that we're impressed by people where they do minimal effort and high reward? I know you have a chapter on art and things like that, right? And so me as somebody right. who's not a, a fan of like, just like, like, I like, I like certain art, but not like, you know, classical paintings or music or whatever, but I look at it and I respect the people who do enjoy it, but I'm like, how long, how, how much effort did that really take? Did you just kind of get like, especially like abstract stuff. Right. But right. I'm, I'm just wondering, are we, are we wired to be impressed by something that seems like minimal effort, whether it's like succeeding in school and career, but they didn't have to try as hard. Like, is that, well, is, I mean, is there any reason it, for that? it is literally more impressive. Yeah. Yeah, so I, the I, fundamental I, thing is to say, like for most positions of authority in our world, we mainly pick on impressiveness. We don't actually pick on effectiveness. We don't pick the doctor who's the best at keeping people alive or the lawyer who wins the cases most often or the teacher who helps you learn how to do things in life. Mm -hmm. We mainly pick these people on being impressive. And there's a standard ladder they have to climb and, and standard ways to show impressiveness. And sometimes that ladder actually has them learn useful stuff in the process of becoming impressive. And sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But from the rest of our point, individual point of view, what we just want is them to be impressive. That's what we're buying. Mm -hmm. We, we so, want to go even to the restaurant with the impressive cook. Yeah. And does it taste better? We don't really know. But we know it's the impressive cook. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I, I've, you know, uh, I've had jobs where they've taken us out to fine dining and stuff. And I'm like, I don't notice much of a difference except for the price tag on this and, right. you know, and all that. And <clears throat> something else, just kind of somewhat of a curveball. I don't know, not really. Like, if I'm, if we're looking at the current like system or just at least in the United States, I'm not so sure about other countries, but when talking about education and careers, you know, do you see our current system set up in a meritocracy or is there more of uh, rewards for signals and prestige and Well, again, it depends on what you mean by merit. Okay. So for some people, impressiveness is merit. Okay. You know, the most impressive person is the most meritorious, even if they don't actually 
do better on some task, you see. Mm. So the question is, what counts as merit? What is, in fact, the most meritorious person for a job? So, okay. yeah. uh, for, for example, you know, I, I'm, I like to advocate using prediction markets in companies, basically betting markets, to find out answers to things. And one of the things a prediction market does is it shows you who bets better, who, who knows better. Mm. And the people who tend to win at prediction markets, who, who tend to earn more cash, they have an ability other people don't have. And you might think, well, that's a valuable thing in the company to find out which people know that better. And people had thought when they introduced these markets, well, we might use that as, as something we would, you know, as an input to deciding who to promote or, you know, put in positions because this ability to judge well about, you know, what's going to be true or false is a valuable ability. But what they found is that the people who predict well are just not the people they want to promote. That is sure they predict well, but they don't have the right look and they don't have to wear the right clothes. They didn't go to the right school and they don't want those people to be promoted because that's not the kind of merit that they were looking for. Hmm. And but in, in the financial sector, isn't that even more irrational? Because wouldn't you want the people who are the best at predicting and making the most? You, you might think so, but it looks like a lot of ordinary investors want to invest in a hedge fund because of the prestige of association they get, and they're willing to lose money to get it. <laughs> On average, people who invest in hedge funds lose money relative to people just to invest in an index fund, yeah. where the index fund, as you know, is just not managed at all. It just mm -hmm. sits there and stays in things. So on average, the actively managed funds lose money relative to the non-actively managed funds. Yeah. Why do people invest in them? Because they get to tell the story of their affiliation with this prestigious fund manager. Yeah, it's uh, a few episodes ago, I had Brian Portnoy on here because I, I, I'm i 36 and I only started getting into uh, investing and managing my money this year. Like, and I'm trying to teach my son to get started much right. earlier, but I just read so many books and started learning about, I had to learn from square one, what's index funds, what's actively managed, what's passively, what's, right. you know, uh, what's the difference between trading and investing. And I'm looking and like, so I look at it and and I'm just like, okay, so I could just, you know, kind of invest in, you know, like an S&P 500 index fund, right. John Bogle method. And, and on average, get a higher return. Yeah. But then I see, I, I see so many, you know, all these funds that people are paying their money, man, right. their money managers and these high percentages. And I'm like, are they even getting you the, the results? But so are you- but they, I'm saying that results aren't the main thing they want. Yeah. They, they want, want the prestige of affiliation. That's they want the connection there. So they want, if the fund does well, they get to claim I had the insight in which guy, which team to pit. I have this connection to them. Yeah. And, you know, for example, I, I, I went and gave a talk at a hedge fund in New York City, which is a relatively mathematical hedge fund once. And they said, look, we could have a lot more money to manage, but you know what happens if we take somebody's money, they think they have the right to call us all the time. <laughs> they, they won't just invest the money and let us give them a higher return. They think like, I'll have to answer their calls all the time. And I don't want to answer that many calls, which is why I don't take that much money. Mm. But you can see the calls are the proof of the connection. You can say, I have my money invested in here and I have a connection to them. It's not just me investing money, but I, I'm connected. We have conversations. We talk on the phone. And yeah. you know that's my proof that it's not just a hands-off relationship. I have a connection. But that you see that now that's what they're buying. They're buying that connection. Yeah. I, you know what that reminds me of uh, a, a lifetime ago in my early twenties, I worked in the car service industry and one of my, my buddies, uh, we worked at Ford together and he went and worked at Mercedes Benz and his experience compared to ours 
was it was night and day because like you're saying with these expensive with these more expensive cars a mercedes compared to a ford they had to be there on call the like the customer could call them after hours and ask them about their car and just all sorts of stuff but that's kind of the bragging rights of owning a a, a high-end vehicle is you get to say these things to your friends and look at my status um and it's it's really interesting do you, so so do you think we'd be better off like you're an economist, right? Do you think we'd be better off thinking more rationally about this stuff, like like outcomes versus? Well, the way I would say it is there are collective losses from signaling. Okay. That is, whenever we, so for example, imagine you know all of our relative sports ability, right? Mm -hmm. Some of us are better than others, some are worse than others, but you know, unless we go and have sports tournaments, you don't really know who's better. Yeah. Now, if we go to a sports tournament, some of us will be shown to be better and others can be shown to be worse. Now, uh, unless the people who are better get much more gains than the people who are worse lose overall this is kind of a loss we're putting all this effort into having these sports contests and mm -hmm. we're just transferring in some sense resources from the losers to the winners but we're not actually like creating value now if there was a kind of job where you just needed somebody who was athletic on the job then sporting contests would show you who those people are and there'd be a value in having some system to identify them but mm -hmm. obviously most sporting contests are going way beyond that <laughs> our sporting system is far larger and more elaborate than we would need just to pick out say the most athletic yeah. people to be a fireman or something right because mm -hmm. yeah. it wouldn't be that hard to select the fireman even without a big huge athletic system right yeah so it's a way in which we lose on average in order to you know show off because each one of us realizes if i don't try at all in sports everybody will assume i'm bad mm -hmm. i would rather take my chance at maybe being good if i yeah. try but it's going to be work to try mm -hmm. so we're all losing on average and that's just sort of a generic story for all the different signaling games we play right mm -hmm. if we would all just go to school less then the people who went to school most would still look as still look at the top but then we wouldn't have wasted as many years in school yeah right That's, yeah yeah so and all the way down the line so if, if if we didn't work so hard to learn so many words in our vocabulary then you know whoever knew the most words would still look the most impressive but now we mm. wouldn't have to spend all this time memorizing words from the dictionary yeah so uh i i i, I was recently um reading a book called subtract and and it was kind of talking about how the more effort we put in so one of the reasons we we add or like uh if we're looking at fund managers and actively manage funds are are you kind of saying that you know it looks more impressive the more work that we're doing and like it doesn't look as impressive if something's passively managed versus actively managed so it, it kind of gives well, off this i mean I, I think it's more just the the actively managed thing might be good or bad but the okay. passively managed thing is guaranteed in the middle so if you just accept the guaranteed in the middle, you're sort of showing that you have less ambition and that oh, you don't so think you wanna... could pick the best okay. one, right? You're trying to show I could pick the better one. I yeah. have a better than average ability to pick the better one. But the only way to do that is to is to pick yeah. and take the risk that it might yeah. be good, or it might be bad. That's the same yeah. way like sports. You could just say, I've never been in a sporting contest. You know nothing about my sporting ability. Yeah. You should assume I'm average. And we're going to say, no, since you chose not to even go into sports, we're going to assume you're worse than average. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I I don't know if I mentioned, but I actually live here in Las Vegas, and it's just making it's it's a lot of it feels like betting, right? Like sure. you could do the safe you could do the safe bets, or you can be like, okay, higher risk, high reward, and you know, instead of saying like middle absolutely of the, right, yeah. yeah of so the road. I mean, that's a stereotype I've seen in movies like 
Uh, Rat Race is a favorite movie of my kids, if you've yeah. seen it. But, you know, there's a story of a one character and there refuses to make any gambles you see in the casino. And we're going to look and everybody says, well, you're just like a stiff who you know, can't take any risks in life. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's seen as a character flaw that he won't make any gambles at the casino right so then the story is if you are willing to make a gamble at a casino you're willing to like take a chance and you're willing you're showing some confidence in your mm. ability of course on average everybody loses because that's how the casino makes the cut yeah but. that's how we stay in business out here in vegas <laughs> yeah so like uh i i i had one more thing i don't want to i could keep you here all day but i I, I heard you talking about effective altruism and I want to talk a little bit about that before okay. I let you go. So going back to just, you know, we do things for other people to signal and all this other stuff, but uh, you know, we, through this conversation, we've talked about outcomes and everything. And I've been, you know, learning about effective altruism and Peter Singer and all that. So I guess my first one is my first question is, um, even if there's signaling involved, if we had to compare effective altruism to other things like just raising GoFundMe money for just some random person, and you know, right. would I, like do we compare those things like and and say, okay, well, this is the best method? Like, because I it felt like like you might have some criticisms of effective altruism, and I like to look at well. The so there's there's two separate concepts. Okay. First, there's the idea of trying to be effective. <laughs> Okay. You know, you could say, well, do I want to just give money and get social credit for that? Or did I actually want to help somebody? Mm -hmm. And of course, there's the idea that if you actually wanted to help somebody, there might be more work involved. You would have to go figure some things out about what is actually mm -hmm. helping. Okay. Okay. And so that's obviously true. Uh, if you want to actually help people, you'll have to like pay more attention to sort of where the money's going and what it's being used for and looking at some data about how effective it is. Okay. And then a separate question is there's a social group that takes upon themselves the mantle of effective altruism. And of course, they are claiming that they are going through this extra work in order to figure out what's effective. Mm -hmm. And the problem you have is if you're thinking of affiliating with this group or joining this group is, are they right? <laughs> are they in fact being more effective? Mm -hmm. Because that's the same problem you had with the charities who all claim they're effective. Yeah. If they just claim that they're trying to be effective, then they won't actually try to be effective unless there's some discipline where you check out what they're doing and hold it to some standard. Mm -hmm. So the world of effective altruism started out uh, with, you know, especially um, a charity evaluator that is somebody like bond evaluators, you know, there are people who rate bonds for their riskiness. Well, there was a charity mm -hmm. evaluating organization who says, okay, what we do is we look at other people's charities and we rate them in terms of effectiveness. They're not our charities, they're the other people's charities. And you know, we are like the bond raters. And so you know, that you might imagine, they'll just like it's easier to invest in a better bond when there's bond raters, it might be easier to invest in a better charity with charity raters. And so that might be a way that you could cheaply actually be effective is because you're gonna trust the rater. Mm. The question is, why do I trust the rater relative to the rate head? It's because, well, they're an independent organization and this is their specialty in life. And so maybe like they put some work into it now. But then, you know, since then, the effective altruism world has moved more toward, well, we don't want to rate other people's charities. We just want to do it ourselves. And so there are charities who are just saying, mm -hmm. we're the effective charities. <laughs> you should yeah. give money to us. And now the question is, well, how do I know you're effective? Who's rating them? <laughs> Well, the, the, nobody is rating them. They are rating themselves and they are inviting you because they are associated with effect, because they quote Peter Singer 
or show up at the same meetings <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> that therefore they qualify that you should see them as effective mm -hmm. and give money to them because they have this social association. Mm. And you okay. see, there's a problem there. <laughs> yeah. Just like you might say, well, you want an effective doctor, don't you? Well, so here are the effective doctors group and they have a meeting. <laughs> Let's use one of those doctors, right? And you might say, well, how do I know they're more effective? You might, you know, might say, how can I get a good auto repair shop, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what if the auto repair shop had a sign up says, member of effective auto repair shops? <laughs> yeah. Would that convince you to go to that auto repair shop? Mm -hmm. Well, you, you can see if, if it's just too easy to join the effective auto repair shop group, yeah. then that's not really a very credible sign, right? Mm -hmm. We might more want an independent organization to be rating them. And then if they got a higher rating, that might be more trustworthy. But them just declaring that they've joined a <laughs> effectiveness group is, again, not by itself terribly persuasive. So, you know, then the key, you still have to do the work of evaluating are these people, in fact, effective yeah. and it's not enough that they give lip service to the slogan yeah you have to look at the data and all that kind of stuff and uh, right i mean so just like in a town there's the religious people who claim they're more moral right well mm -hmm. are they i mean you might want to look look at how they live and see right yeah sometimes the religious people just claim they're more moral but they aren't any more moral than anybody else yeah. <laughs> they're doing all the same things everybody else is doing but they go to church right yeah yeah exactly yeah and, and trust me that's uh, that's something i thought about a lot growing up in las vegas surrounded by you know my right. my friends mormon families and everything i'm like wait a wait a second um okay so my last final question for you this is something that racks my brain and i i don't know if i want your like a, opinion advice like from a just uh like how how we live right so i i think about us doing good for others so let me just create a scenario. Someone, someone thinks you're uh, person A thinks person B is a bad person. Person B does some charity and stuff like that. And maybe they've been doing charity for years, right? And you would think person B thinks that person A now thinks that they're a good person. But person A is like, no, you're just you're just doing the good thing. So I think you're a good person. So my yeah. question is. You know, uh, uh, in you know, in our in our culture, is it better for us to shut our mouth and just do good and not tell anybody? But then we don't reap the benefits of signaling, like, "Hey, I'm somebody who might be beneficial for you to keep in your circle because I like to help others." Right? So, a related point here is anonymous giving. Mm -hmm. So people might say, "Ah, well, if you give and then you let people know that you give." Well, then you're doing it in order to let, you know, get the praise of people seeing that you do it. So the real virtuous person is the person who gives anonymously. Mm -hmm. Now, there, there are several issues there. Mm -hmm. One is, well, if you gave and other people saw you give, you might create more social pressure for other people to give. So you might cause more total giving by giving publicly. And that mm -hmm. might be overall a good thing because there'd be more effect. And then you might also say, well, look, what happens is, Sometimes people see somebody helping or giving in a way that seems anonymous, but then of course it isn't because somebody's seeing it. And then they give that person all so much more extra social credit. They say, you know, I know that John is an extra good person because I heard that John anonymously gave this big gift and he wouldn't let anybody associate his name with it. But then how did you hear about it? Well, I just happened to get lucky. So, so basically the fact is when people give anonymously, they almost always let some people know. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I've, I've noticed that right. just about myself. Like, I feel like I, at least one person has to know. At least one person right. needs to know I did this good deed. You're right, because now you're getting this something. extra social credit from them. You're showing them that you didn't let other people hear. <laughs> and in some sense, you're basically saying, I care about your opinion much more than their opinion. I'm concentrating my whole signal just on you. Yeah. Just so that you will appreciate what a good person I am. And I'm extra good because I'm only showing you and not showing other people. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's why, you know, if I don't tell anybody else about my good deed, it's my girlfriend. It's like, Hey, you pick the right guy. You're with somebody who does good deeds. So I'll mention the concept of marginal charity. So if you think about charity, we often ask about cost effectiveness. Mm. How much benefit do people get relative to the cost to me? And so we, of course, think all else equal, you want to do cost effective charity, right? That's the idea of effective altruism, say. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that we can find a kind of help that is cost effectiveness goes to infinity. <laughs> so the idea is, imagine I'm making a choice uh, and picking a number that's at the peak of some curve, right? Mm -hmm. Say I'm building a building and I'm building it, the, my profit maximizing building is 10 stories tall. And I pick that. Now I ask myself, well, what if I deviated a little from this profit maximizing peak in the direction of what would be socially beneficial? Okay. Well, the social beneficial curve does not peak at the same point. So that curve is, is still going up with a positive slope at the point where the other curve hits a peak and is flat. So when you move away from the peak just a slight bit, the cost to yourself is infinitesimal, but you still have this big gain for yeah. other people. So small marginal changes on what you would have done to be selfish in the direction of what is pro-social or helpful has, you know, in the limit, infinite cost benefit. <laughs> you give huge benefits to other people at a very tiny cost to yourself. Yeah. So you might think, well, that's just the sort of charity we should be really promoting. We should be telling everybody, look, try to look at what's optimal for you and then just move it a little bit in the direction of what helps everybody <laughs> else. Because look, it's hardly going to cost you anything and it's going to give everybody all these other benefits. Now, the problem is, it's too easy to claim that you did that when you didn't, right? Because yeah. people can't tell exactly where your peak is. You, you, you could be doing at what's exactly your private peak and claiming that you moved it a little in the direction of everybody else. So, you know, maybe you built one more floor on your building as a way to help the city have more density and activity. And you say, I sacrificed because instead of building a profit maximizing 10 floors, I built 11 floors. Yeah. But maybe secretly 11 was the profit maximizing. We don't know. We can't tell you that exactly. Yeah. So you can see that there's this huge valuable kind of charity called marginal charity that in fact, very few people talk about or encourage or want to claim credit for because it's hard to claim credit for it. And so they're really very obsessed with people just giving a lot yeah. and doing a lot rather than the, the effectiveness. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's all, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. And when you put it like that too, I, I think about just uh, the, the, the billionaires, millionaires and stuff who, you know, oh, look, I, we gave hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. And then, you know, uh, you see mixed reviews because in proportion to how much they made, how much did they really move? Right? How much, how much was it? Like, how much was your sacrifice? Right. We're often looking at their sacrifice as the measure yes. of their charity rather than their effect, right? Yeah. So if you, if you look at, say, Bezos or his wife, you know, yes, they're giving money to charity, but like they could change their business practices a little bit and benefit us all yeah. at a very small cost to themselves. Yeah. They may claim that they did that. How would we know? <laughs> and yeah. so 
we, we don't give them credit for that, mm-hmm. even though it may be sort of the main effect they have, right? They, they might have a bigger positive effect on the world by how they slightly change their business practices than the money they give away. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh man, yeah, like I said, I could talk to you all day, Robert, but but before I let you go, uh, and, and I'm personally curious too, but for everybody out there who wants to find you, where can they find you? Uh, are you working on- I'm Easy to find. Else? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, just Google my name, Robin Hansen. I have a Twitter account. I have a blog called Overcoming Bias. I have some web pages. In the last six months, I've been, you know, focused on something called the grabby aliens analysis of where, you know, where we are in the history of the universe and when we'll meet other creatures out there. And that's a little related to uh, the recent UFO. Oh, really cool. Pool of interest, but uh, you know, that'll have to be for another day. Yeah. All right. Awesome. And I'm going to link all that stuff down in the description below. So thank you so, so much for your time, Robin. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. All right, everybody. There you have it. That was my conversation with Robin Hansen. So yeah, if you if you found any of this stuff interesting, make sure you go down to the description below, follow Robin over on Twitter, grab a copy of this book, read it, and let me know. Let me know after you read it. Tweet at me or tag me on Instagram or message me or whatever. Let me know what you thought. Like like Robin said in this conversation, like they, they, they might not sell you on all the chapters, but the things that you don't hold so dearly, you might be a little bit more open-minded about. But like I said, I, I really hope you guys found this interesting because as I said in the, in the intro, this will change the way you kind of view the world and not only the behaviors of others, but our own behaviors. Like I I mentioned it in this conversation with Robin, like now when I'm doing things, I pause and I try to reflect a little bit or I even reflect on things that I wasn't paying attention to. I'm like, why did I do that? What was my motive, right? Was I signaling? And, And it's not always a bad thing, but when we're more aware of these things, we have a little bit more control and we can improve and adjust and recognize, you know? Uh, truth is a big thing. And one of the things is we lie to ourselves and sometimes it's necessary, but you know, a lot of the times just by being aware, we, we can head uh, in the right direction a little, little bit better. All right, but anyways, again, check out the description down below, follow Robin, grab a copy of The Elephant in the Brain, and while you're at it, don't forget to follow me. It's also linked down below. I'm over on Twitter and Instagram, at The Rewired Soul. And for anybody out there who loves the podcast, or if you're brand new and you found out you love the podcast, make sure that you're sharing this on social media. And if you're not yet, follow it on Spotify or Apple, subscribe to it. And what really helps out too is if you leave a rating and a review that helps out. We're a a couple months into this podcast and that helps get it out to new people along with you sharing it with friends, family, and everything like that. All right. So if you want to do that, I'd be greatly appreciative. And for anybody who's interested in supporting the podcast, there's some links down below. You can buy some of my books that I've written over at therewiredsoul.com. You can become a patron. And there's also a, a link down below for better help online therapy. That's an affiliate link and it's a a service that I've personally used and I'm really big on mental health because of my recovery. And as I mentioned, uh, when I recorded this, it was the day before my nine year sober birthday. Um, But you know, therapy is a huge, huge part of my life, right? And it really helped me become okay with looking at those difficult parts of myself and becoming more self-aware. So if you're interested in this topic that I talked about with Robin, but you're worried about some stuff, therapy might be a good 
a good opportunity for you. All right, so check that out down below. But anyways, I appreciate each and every one of you. If you've made it through this entire podcast, it was a long conversation. But like I said, I have so many great episodes coming up this week and in future weeks. And make sure you're following me because I do little teasers and announcements of other authors I'm talking to. And we have so many great conversations coming up. So thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. All right. Be aware of the elephant in the brain. And I will see you in the next episode.